Now, I know that I've had several opportunities to preach under these limited circumstances of trying to keep a sermon short, um, so I can't claim that this is my first time in the pulpit, <clears throat> but Pastor Chansky is my model. So, um, by God's grace, we'll all be able to bear up and be able to hear God's word, and God will help me to preach it faithfully. As we gather here tonight, I would be surprised if many of you had not heard the phrase found in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, about the sons of Issachar. They were men who understood the times and with knowledge of what Israel should do. And they are often set forth as examples for us as to how we need to relate to our own culture as well. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, uh, makes them aware of the fact that they need to be aware of, as he is aware of, the schemes of the evil one, the schemes of the devil, and how he seeks to take people captive. And so even for the Ephesians, he says to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Well, as I come tonight, I'm very much aware of the fact that there are innumerable voices that are speaking in our present cultural environment and in the present cultural conversation. And with so many voices, we, the people of God, need to think clearly in order to discern which ones are speaking the truth. It's been said that uh, we have come past the postmodern era and that we're actually entering in, a number of apologists have said this, into a post-truth era. We've come through the time when uh, people were promoting moral relativism, that is the idea that everybody's morals are relative either to an individual or to some circumstances or relative to their culture or relative to some particular community. And by moral relativism, I just mean that what is right and wrong is determined by these various ways, that it's, it's relative to uh, the circumstances or individuals, and each individual decides, or each circumstance decides, or each family decides, each neighborhood decides. We heard this morning of how this is nothing new. Uh, Pastor Chansky quoted Isaiah 5 and verse 20, and it's a very appropriate verse for, for a society that's living this way. For there we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. But we've gone beyond just moral relativism and we've come into something which is thought of or, or described as philosophical relativism. And I'm not trying to make myself sound really important here. I'm just, I'm just trying to use terms that uh, capture what it is I'm trying to say. Philosophical relativism, by that I mean that we've come beyond just morals, what's rude and right, to actually saying reality is relative to the individual. Each individual determines what's true, what's real, or each community determines what's true and what's real on their own. And so we've come beyond this and we're going into a place where, where reality is being denied. And we're trying to live in something of a make-believe world. 
Well, by, I'm introducing all this because I, I want to say uh, some things about this sermon that I'm about to preach, a couple of things in particular. It is not a sermon aimed directly at right living. It's a sermon directed at right thinking. Now, yes, right thinking produces right living. It's essential to right living. But I'm aiming particularly at this reality of being an instrument for transforming or renewing your mind so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the sermon is not, also I want to say that the sermon is not directly addressing any specific questions or statements presently being bandied about, kicked about in the cultural conversation. I'm not going to get that specific. I'm going to give what I hope are some foundational truths from God's word so that hopefully we can find our footing or reestablish our footing or be encouraged that we're standing on good footing as we have opportunity to engage in the cultural conversations today. Now, there are several big questions that could be addressed here. We could address the issue, and I could spend time talking about what is truth. Can truth be known? If it is known, can it be found and fully understood? Well, the Bible certainly addresses that. It starts right from the beginning to say, and God said, and it was so. He, he spoke truth, and it came into existence. God is the author of reality. General revelation reveals the truth of God. And special revelation especially addresses truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Or John 14 and verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So we could discuss and I could preach on what is truth. Where do you find truth? But I think that's a relatively simple question for us as Christians to identify. It's found here in God's word. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. But I ask you this by way of application before I go any further. Are you thoroughly convinced that the Bible is God's word? That is the word of the God who created all things by his own spoken word. If you do, then it's authoritative. It has demands and requirements. Are you thoroughly convinced that God's word is absolutely true? If you are, then you know it's trustworthy, and you can rest upon it and trust in it. And are you as also thoroughly convinced that when God wrote his word, when God inspired men to pen his word, he had you in mind, did you know that? Do you believe that? Because he did. And that means that this word is relevant and sufficient for us today. We don't need to go to the gurus. We don't need to go to the cultural elite. We don't need to go outside. We have a sufficient word from God. And are we thoroughly convinced that Christ is the embodiment of that truth because then everything we find in this is evangelical or it comes back to the gospel. 
We could also talk about God and does God exist? And again, the Bible is clear. I don't think Christians have any difficulty going to the Bible to learn uh, things about God. It starts right there in the first page, in the first uh, sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a profound statement. And just thinking through all the implications of that particular statement is, is, is mind-boggling. He is the eternal God because he was there in the beginning. He is the one true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. He is the one that is part of the old covenant religion and the new covenant religion that there is Jehovah who is our God, Jehovah who is one. And he's also a trinity, and I could pull up numbers of verses that talk about that. You can go read Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17, for instance, and he's knowable. Matter of fact, he tells us that we should love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus came into this world that we might know God. So I ask you, do you know him? I mean, you all know him. I know you know him because my Bible tells me that you know him. He's revealed himself to you very clearly in creation and in your own conscience. You know he exists. You know he's there. You know he's God. And he has demands that he's making upon you. You know it. Now, you're trying to deny it. You could try to suppress it, but you know it. But the fact is, do you know him savingly? Do you know him as the God who sent his son into the world to die for sinners like you? And have you embraced him? As Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you and the, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And brethren, do we live like he really exists? Do we live like he's actually present, watching, hearing, guiding, caring? Well, those aren't the questions I want to address tonight. This is just my introduction. Third question is the one I really want to address tonight. It's really, again, only foundational. Lord willing, there will be further sermons built upon this and other foundational truths that will address some very important issues that are in our present cultural conversation. And I'm being generic on purpose, but that's exactly where we hope to go. As we've discussed as elders, things that need to be said. And this was just a burden that was on my heart to kind of, as it were, start the conversation here. Here's my question. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? In other words, who am I and who are you? That's the question I want to address and answer this evening in part as best I can with the time that's remaining. This is a question that is found in the scriptures. The scriptures have a lot to say about what it is to be human. But I just want to take five passages from God's word, five passages, each of which contain this question. What is man? And I want to look at the answers that are given in God's word to that question and some of the corollary things that come out. So this is our question tonight. What does it mean to be human? And here's my first point. What is man? Four texts I want us to look at here under this particular point. What is man. Turn with me to the first passage and really the foundational passage, and some of you probably have already guessed it, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. In Psalm chapter 8, we have this question asked and answered. 
The psalmist is in the, and I've got three points under each of these texts. I have the context. What's the, what's the passage about? What's leading up to this? The question asked and the answer given. And then some response to that found in the text. First of all, the context. David, and I don't have time to read through the whole thing, but David is contemplating the night sky. He's contemplating the cosmos, this great cosmos as far as he could understand it. And as he's contemplating that cosmos in this night sky, he sees something of God's glory and God's majesty, God's greatness and God's mercy displayed for him in that. And so he asks in verse 4, We'll start reading at verse 3. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? So David asks the question. And he answers the question even in the way that he asks it. He talks about what is man And what is the son of man? What is man? This man, this word for man here is enosh or enosh or enosh, excuse me, enosh. It's man versus God is the way that the word is used throughout the Old Testament, used to describe a comparison frequently between God and enosh or enosh between man. And basically the bottom line is with this particular word is man is not on a par with God. No matter how you compare him, he cannot compare. And then the second phrase is the son of Adam, literally the son of Adam or Adam. And that is, this is your part of that long line of creatures that came down from the first man, Adam. Adam that was made of dust. And you partake of that very same nature. Now, the very next sentence just goes on to describe this uh, the man, and it says, you have made him a little lower than God or a little lower than angels. And I'm not going to get into the debate and, and of the, the how to best understand that particular phrase, whether it's God or angels. I'll just give you what Kylan Delich put it, said, basically, this is the point being made. Man is inferior to God in this respect, that he is a material being and on this very account, a finite and mortal being as compared to God, who is spirit, and angels, who are spirits. So this is man. He's this finite, material, mortal being. So what's the answer then when, when David asks this question, what is man? Well, basically, I summarize it this way. Man is small and insignificant. He looks at the creation. Man is dust. Man is small and insignificant. And yet this is what blows David's mind as he thinks about this, because he's going to go on to talk about, well, wait a minute, the reason I'm asking this question is because you show such concern for men. You show such interest in man. You visit them with constant provision. And we see that from the garden onwards, where he gave them all the trees to eat from. And he constantly comes and ministers to his people, provides for his people, protects his people, intervenes on behalf of his people, listens to his people. We see him ministering. You see him visiting man, even there in the garden where he comes, and he walks with him in the cool of the day. 
And again, we see him throughout history coming to his people, meeting with them, walking with them, communing with them. This is, this is astonishing to David. So here's this, here's this first text that has this question. In the midst of the cosmos, David asks the question, what is man? He answers the question, man is small and insignificant. And he says, then, wow, then why do you care for him so much? Second text, Psalm 144. Psalm 144. Verses 3 through 4. Now, we'll read the opening verses here because that sets the context for us. Blessed be Jehovah, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, description of God, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people or peoples under me. Lord, Jehovah, what is man? that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man, that you think of him. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So here the context is he's, he's wondering about, he's considering God's merciful character. God is a rock where he can find protection. God is a trainer who trains his hands for war. He is his very loving kindness, mercy, hesed, intense mercy all around him. He is his fortress, stronghold, deliverer, shield, refuge. He subdues peoples under him. He, he gives him his reign. You see all of this that here's what he's considering, God's merciful, protective greatness and power and provision. And when he's contemplating that, he says, God, what is man? It makes him stop and say, who am I? And when he answers that question, he answers it with the same kinds of words. He flips the words around a little bit, still using Adam and Enosh, but he's, he's flipped them a little bit. But then he goes on and adds this phrase in the next sentence. He says, man is like breath, a mere breath, not the wind, breath and like a passing shadow not the long standing shadow of a of a sunset that stays and you can watch it but it's something that comes and it goes like the shadow when you're trying to read in the car along a road that's got a lot of trees on the side and the sun is out and it's like poof, 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 you know and it's light dark light dark light dark light dark that's that's kind of shadows he's talking about it's here one moment and it's gone the next and man is just like those things he's not even those things he's just kind of like them this word breath mere breath there's other places but listen to psalm 62 describing men. He says, men of low degree are only vanity, they're emptiness, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. Just scale out and you go, it doesn't move. Because that's man. The shadow that passes, the breath. In other words, man is weak. I had the word wimpy but maybe weak is a better one that kind of gets everybody weak and fleeting. 
This is what man is. Weak and fleeting, passing, constantly disappearing, here for a moment and gone. And you young people, you don't know all that, what that means. As you get older, it just becomes more and more obvious. It's gone. And where'd it go? I'm holding Ava in my hands because I can remember holding another little girl in my hands. And now she's got a little girl in her hand. It's like, whoa, where did that go? That's what he's saying here. It's, it's weak, fleeting, transient, constantly moving. And yet he goes on in David's astonishment and he says, wait a minute, God, then why do you take such time to know breath? Why do you take such time to stoop down and to think upon and give concern for mere breath and passing shadows? Why do you even give any time of day for that? Spurgeon said it this way, the psalmist's, the psalmist's wonder is that God should stoop to know him, and indeed it is more remarkable than if the greatest archangel should make a study of ants or become the friend of mites. He says for God to look down on us and think about us, take time to think, oh, what was that little breath that just went by there? But he does. He's all these things, David says to me. So much so that he, he goes on to pray that this God would actually act on his behalf. Why do you take the time to know breath and give respectful, purposeful thought to a passing shadow? Man is small and insignificant. Man is weak and fleeting. Third passage, Job seven seventeen. Job seven seventeen. The context is Job considering the pain of his affliction, and it's he's really wrestling with uh, how he's lived before God and trying to get a grasp of why is there so much pain in my life. And in the midst of that, he asks this question: What? is man. He says, I waste away. I will never live. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him and you are concerned about him that you do that you examine him every morning and try him every moment. What is man? Look at verse 21 because he says man is just breath in verse 16. But notice verse 21. Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. He says, you're going to look for me and I'm, I'm not even going to be there. In verse 20, it says, O watcher of men, why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why, do you, why, why are you even concerned about me? I'm, I'm so small. I'm so inconsequential. I can't do anything to you. Nothing I do changes you or affects you. I'm mortal. I'm going to pass away. Why do you, as it were, pull out the magnifying glass and look at all of my flaws and all of the things that I do and, and bring them to mind? Why do you set your heart upon me? That is, pay attention to me in every step along the way. As one commentator says, why do you keep paying inspection visits to test me, always watching to find fault? Verse 18. 
You examine me every morning. Try me every moment. And then he says, why don't you just take your, look away for just a moment, he says. Take your gaze off of me and let me swallow my spit. Why do you scrutinize me? Why do you search me out? Why have you made me your target? Man here is inconsequential and mortal as he considers all the pain and suffering that he's under, and he knows it's coming from God. He's astonished that God's so concerned about him. If I'm that small, why do you take so much time to deal with me? Last passage, Job chapter 15, verses 14 and 16, 14 to 16. Here again, now this is Eliphaz speaking, and he's considering God's purity and his view of God's righteousness and how if God is righteous and any pain comes, it must be because there is sin that is being addressed. So he's looking at the righteousness of God and he's looking at what Job is going through. And, he, and we read verse 14, What is man that he should be pure? Or, who, or he who is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, that his God does not, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. Now what is Eliphaz's view of Job and, and man in particular at this point in time? His view of man is this, man is impure, Man is unrighteous, man is detestable, man is corrupt, man drinks water or drinks iniquity, sin like water. In other words, human beings are sinful creatures. No wonder God as righteous has to put, put, bring such pain upon them. Now, Job actually seems to agree with this assessment of how God views things, at least at the early part of this book. We read in Job chapter 9 and verse 2, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? There's no way that man can be right before God. So Eliphaz's following statement is a judgment, and he says, So Job, you're a sinner because you're under pain and feeling suffering. God punishes Sin is Eliphaz's view. He says, what is man? Man is sinful. What does God do? He judges. Let me compile the picture for you here that we've just seen and kind of bring it all together from these four passages. What is man like? Man is small, insignificant, weak, fleeting, inconsequential, mortal, impure, unrighteous, detestable, corrupt, and iniquitous. That's man. And I think that's a fairly good picture of mankind. As the Bible paints man. Small, insignificant, weak, fleeting, inconsequential, mortal, impure, unrighteous, detestable, corrupt, and iniquitous. But all this is painted in the background of a God who is interacting with these creatures. And the God who is reacting or interacting with these creatures is a majestic God who sees and provides 
for these small, insignificant, weak, fleeting, inconsequential, mortal, impure, unrighteous, detestable, corrupt, iniquitous creatures. He's also a merciful God who knows and regards them. He takes thought of them. He counts their days. He knows their goings when they rise up before they go. And he is a mysterious God who scrutinizes and afflicts. And he is a moral God who judges and punishes. This is who God is. One who sees and provides, knows and regards, scrutinizes and afflicts and judges and punishes. So that's what man is, and that's the God he has to do with. Well, my next question is this, then. Well, why is man so special? You know, we got this question, what is man? And we kind of looked at what it says, what it is. But the question is really not just what is man, but what is man that you do these things to him? So why is man so special that you would do these things? Why does such a great God care for men? And why does such a great God care about what men do? Well, the answer here is found in Psalm 8. So let's go back to our first psalm, Psalm 8, verses 5 and seven, five through 7. It's because of man's unique place in creation and because of man's responsibility in corruption. Why is man so special that God relates to him in this way, interacts with him in this way? Well, as we read in in Psalm 8, it's because you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and majesty, and you make him to rule over the works of your hands, and then he details what that means. You have put all things under his feet. So here's the main things. Here's the reason. It's because God has crowned him in creation with glory and honor and because he's given him a place of rule. Now, this is just a poetic description of what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. So if you look at Genesis 1, 26 and 28, I want to look at what this says about who man is. And again, remember, I'm just trying to set out, I hope you're still with me, just trying to set out foundational truths. What is man and why is God relating to man the way he does? What is man and why is God relating to him the way he does? Why is man so special? We read in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, the narrative that parallels the poetry of Psalm 8. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So now if I were in my worldview class, I would ask, 
question, class, what does this say about the unique place of man in creation? And my astute students would all say, he's made in the image of God, imago Dei, as the uh, school says, right? This is, he's made in the image of God. This is who man is. God took unique intention and gave unique attention to creating man. He spoke and much of the created order came into place. But when he came to man, he said, let us make man. And then, having had that special intention, he took special attention, and he took of the earth, and he formed a body, and he breathed into him spirit. He breathed into him. So he gave him a special attention just in his making, but he has this unique identity. He is made in the image of God. What the psalmist says, he was crowned with glory and honor. This is the glory of man. This is what makes man honorable. We are image bearers of God. You are, I am. We are image bearers of God. This is what God intended us to be, and this is what he made man to be. Now, he did that in a context in which he made them male and female. That's all part of what he was doing in making them into his image bearers, male and female. And this image-bearing capacity, some theologians believe, was obliterated at creation. But it wasn't obliterated at creation, at least not the way I understand the Bible. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, in Genesis 9 and verse 6, when Moses is, or when, yeah, when Moses is recording what God told Noah after the flood about how murder was to be addressed... He says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, establishing human government right here after the, in the Noahic covenant. For in the image of God, he made man. And then in the New Testament, in James chapter 3 and verse 9, speaking about the use of our tongue, it says that we can oftentimes use it in a very duplicitous or, or double standard sort of way. With, with it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So when we curse somebody, we're cursing somebody made in the image of God. They are still image bearers of God. Yes, yes, uh, marred beyond recognition at times but still image bearers. Man was created to portray God's character in his moral universe to his moral universe. We are his image. We were made to be his likeness. We are like a, a blueprint or a model or a representation. We are his representatives on earth. Now, there's many ways that we can understand the way we represent God on earth. Ephesians 4 indicates that we do that by representing God in his righteousness, in his holiness, and in his truth. 
We are image bearers of God, made to display God's righteous character, his justness, his integrity, his honesty, his faithfulness. We are to model, we are to display his holiness, that is, his purity and his truth. We are to display that truth in accuracy and in faithfulness. It is to be represented in our words. It is to be represented in our relationships. That's why this takes place in a context where there are male and female, Adam and Eve. God names and Adam imitates him. He names. God rules and Adam imitates him. He rules. God creates and orders and Adam, his worker in the garden, is supposed to do the same thing and to keep and to till and to make this world fruitful, the garden fruitful. This is his unique identity, image bearer of God. This is who man is. This is why God cares for men and why God scrutinizes men because, well, we'll come to that in just a minute because there's also this position. He's also given the position of ruling. Again, back in Psalm 8, it says he made him to rule. Kyle and Delich said, man is a king and not a kingdom without a territory. The world around him with the works of creative wisdom which it fills is his kingdom. Man was given the place of rule under God. This is what man was supposed to do. This is who man is. But man also bears a specific responsibility for corruption. This is the still point number two. Why is man so special? One, because he has a unique place in creation. He is made in the image of God and he is given rule in God's, in God's world. But then secondly, because of his responsibility for corruption. Adam fell. It's those little words, and he ate, that Paul picks up on and says, when Adam sinned, we sinned, and the evidence of that is the fact that we all die. And so this image, this beautiful representation of God that he had created in Adam and Eve and put in the garden and cared for so well, he says it's marred. It became marred through this rebellion against God, through this rejection of God's rule. It became marred horribly, totally. Every human in every part of our humanity, though we're preserved by God's grace from being as bad as we could be, Yet we are still marred. This is why God cares for us and scrutinizes us. We're his creatures made in his image. Not the angels aren't made in God's image. The animals aren't made in God's image. The trees aren't made in God's image. Humans are made in God's image. And therefore God cares for them. But they're fallen. And they're marred. And there isn't one of us in this room, there isn't one of us that's ever been born into this world that didn't come into this world marred in this way because of sin. And so every human being, image bearer, marred. Broken. 
There is none righteous, not even one. So those are the truths with regard to what man is and why God is so concerned for man. Ultimately, I know it's his glory. I'm not trying to deny that, God's own glory and all of this, but the fact of the matter is this is how he's worked this out. And this is why I'm out of time. Well, you may have noted that I said there were five texts where this phrase appears, what is man? And we've only looked at four. And it's the fifth text that we really need that gives us the solution. We'll have to do that another time. But let me just say this. Because so much, from what I've said so far, I can say this. Any answer to any societal in some sense, even personal problem that we face as humans, any solution, any answer given to any of the problems that we face in our society that denies, neglects, or ignores any of these foundational truths, that this is the kind of weak, feeble, insignificant, sinful creatures we are, And that all that we have comes down from the Father of lights. Every good gift we have comes from Him. And everything wrong with this culture ultimately resides or comes back to this issue of man is corrupt. And that every one of us is corrupt. Any solution to any societal problem that denies, neglects, or ignores any of these foundational truths is at least faulty, erroneous, and possibly even dishonest and wicked. Because you see, if we start looking at the problems, and remember this was Adam and Eve, male and female, if we start looking at all of the ways we relate to one another and the problems that we face. And we forget the fact that men are basically sinners. They're not basically good. They're fallen. They're warped. They're marred. Then we're not going to find the solution. If we come back to a solution that leaves out the fact that our dignity is tied up with this, our dignity is not tied up with how high our scores are, how powerful we are, how influential we are. Our identity is not tied up in any of those things. Our identity is tied up in this. We're made as God's image bearers. And every single human being, everyone, from conception to death, Every single one is an image bearer of God, and that's where our dignity is found. And we should treat them with that kind of dignity. And we should honor them because of that reality. We should view and treat everybody as the unique created being we are. Image bearers of the God of heaven. And that should make us commiserate 
when we see those image bearers giving themselves over to sin. That should break our hearts when we see them running in the way of falsehood or running in the way of self-destruction. That should tear us apart for the glory of God is being denied him in that individual because they're giving themselves to their sin. It should also move us to do all we can to see them restored. And that's the point I didn't get to because we're only restored in Christ Jesus who is remaking his children into the image of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And friends, these are, these are foundational truths. I know many of you know them, but we need to bring them to the forefront and make sure th- that we're thinking along these lines biblically as we start addressing the cultural conversations all around us. Because there are all kinds of voices that are speaking to us and they are not speaking from this platform. And if they're not speaking from this platform, then they're not speaking the truth. And they're not going to have the full solution. So may God be pleased to help us to speak truth into the midst of all the lies that are going around. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be gracious to help us to think biblically at this time in our world, in our culture. Help us to think according to your word. Thank you for the unbelievable, astonishing, amazing privilege of making us your image bearers. Thank you for the grace that there is in Christ Jesus to restore that image in us. We ask that you would be about that in us and use us as instruments for good in our culture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.